Hey there, how's it going? Welcome to The Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. A woman in one of our online groups got very into a book she'd read by a meditation teacher and psychologist and part-time Harvard professor named Ronald Siegel called The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. And so this woman is a very kind of motivated, ambitious person with a, uh, a high responsibility job. And she would come to the group each week and talk about how this week she learned how to be ordinary again, and it was so helpful to her, and that kind of changed her thinking about living. So I was on the lookout for it, and shortly afterwards, I read an Atlantic review of a very similar-sounding book, though this one an academic book, called The Good Enough Life by a man named Avram Alpert, and they liked the book. So struck by how the idea was circling me from different places, I picked up Alpert's book. I learned that Mr. Alpert had been influenced by a decades-old essay on good enough parenting by a man named Donald Winnicott, which then another friend unprompted emailed me about. So it seemed like this idea was circling me. Uh, I then learned that Avram Alpert picked up on a virtual conversation with a mega-selling self-help author, who I learned, wrote on related themes, named Mark Manson in his book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. So this was now four books that uh, had come up from different sources, all on a very related theme. I will make a point. If you decide you want to write a book, um, I would consider self-help and using a provocative title like The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, which I'm euphemizing. That book has 80,000 reviews on Amazon. The academic book, which was reviewed so positively in The Atlantic, which made me buy it, 28 reviews. Just saying. Anyway, of course, while by no means being spiritual, apart from the extraordinary gift of being ordinary, maybe— you will recognize how this idea of good enough living ties into the fundamental contemplative value proposition of finding everything you need for your life right here now, that your good life isn't lurking over some ever-receding horizon. These many authors, helpfully for me at least, put some color to that thought in their own sometimes vivid ways. So this week, I'm going to walk you into some of the insights from two of these thinkers, and I'll be curious if you're as helped as my friend was by a shift into this kind of good enough thinking as a way to bring balance into our life that can make your, your life more joyful. Before we get started, let me encourage you to check out our parent website at journey-on.net. Among other interesting things going on in the Journey On world right now is a four-week Get Started group, which will be coming up later in October where should you decide to pop your head in, you can connect around this stuff with other folks who are eager to dip a toe in these waters. These groups are going to run Thursday, starting at 4 p.m. Pacific time, and you can register interest again at journey-on.net. All right, let's launch into Try Good Enough Living. A high school friend of mine, I will call him Kevin, and I would play wiffle ball together. Kevin and I knew how to party. And after one game, we were in his kitchen drinking lemonade, and he, a very innocent and open-hearted guy, posed a deep question. He said, you know, I've been thinking about it, and it seems to me, if you don't get famous, what's the point? Kevin ended up getting cancer. He died tragically young. He, unless I'm missing something, never got famous. But he had a lot going for him, a lovely family that, from my outside vantage point, seemed loving a responsible and interesting job, lots of good stuff. So clearly the right answer from an adult perspective is to say that, to quote the old movie, Kevin lived a wonderful, if sadly shortened, life, that fame would not have added much to what he already had. Okay, but that said, I'll tell you, honestly, looking into my deepest self, even at my advanced age, I definitely can see ongoing dreams of like making a big splash in some new way. 
And I've remembered Kevin's comment, as I mentioned, in the middle of being surrounded by an idea that's been in the air, at least in my world, that I'm going to talk about today. The idea that is there a threshold for our lives, a kind of good enough that will get us where we want to go better than whatever in our life looks like making it, making a splash? In fact, will focusing on making it, whatever that might mean for us, make us less likely to find the life we're hoping for? Now, maybe the whole premise of this only applies to young, ambitious people, um, the people who are determined to make their mark. It's possible it no longer even speaks to old, but still occasionally ambitious people like me. So keep that in mind. Maybe this won't apply to you. But I will say, as I've run this by several of our online groups, I found it hits a whole lot of people pretty squarely at a useful place just to flag. So I'm going to run some of these folks' thoughts by you, focusing only on two of the books I alluded to earlier, The Good Enough Life, the academic one, and a book it overtly dialogues with, the blogger self-help book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. As you might guess, they bring quite different strengths to the table. I'll give their own words, some room to breathe with comments here and there from me, but maybe these thoughts will mostly serve as a table setter for your own conversations about where you find meaning, rather than as something that's going to end with four steps you should take for a better good enough life or something. So far, that approach of just sort of setting the table with their comments has been a winner in the conversations I've been having at the very least. So here are some thoughts from The Good Enough Life, again by Avram Alpert, which again was the academic book I mentioned. Here's um, his opener. My basic argument, he says, is that greatness thinking, in fact, begins as a meaningful response to the fact that life is imperfect. Accidents, tragedies, and failures befall us all. Greatness responds by saying, don't worry, we can overcome this. Though the world as it is may be flawed, humans have the capacity to eventually remove the blemishes of our condition. To do so, we simply have to encourage the most talented among us, the great ones, to innovate and create and explore. They're going to push past the limits of our ecosystem and create a flourishing world for the rest of us. To incentivize them to do so, they should be given tremendous wealth and power. And in order to find out who these great ones are, we should have a fiercely competitive society where everyone's trying to prove why they are the greatest. To become great is to feel justified in being spared from suffering some real portion of life's calamities because you are improving life for everyone, whether by creating wealth, entertainment, or inventions, all of your rewards are justified. Desiring greatness thus makes a lot of sense, but it also creates the anxieties and paradoxes of the world we live in. And that's where this book ends up going. It starts off by this understandable look at why we all want to be great, and we think it's probably okay that society rewards greatness um, disproportionately. But his point is it's ruining the entire world, and he's an academic, so he has this big social justice um, emphasis in, his, in where he's headed. Um, in fact, here's a taste of where he's coming from social justice-wise. He says, the world built around greatness has left billions of people without adequate income, food, or health care, while the fortunes of the world's wealthiest have grown by billions of dollars. There's increasing evidence today, for example, that progress is made not by getting the best and brightest in the room, but rather by cooperative reflection among diverse, well-informed viewpoints, that collective intelligence is more fundamental to human progress than individual genius. And even when a singular genius appears, their work always depends on vast networks and institutions that have supported them. And uh, as I'm remembering from his book, he brings up a charming anecdote from the always charming Albert Einstein, one of the great singular geniuses as we look back over the last hundred or so years. Einstein would be one of the first names we come up of a great genius who made things better for all of us. Apparently Einstein said, I could not have done what I did 
without the people who created the instruments I use, without the people who built the roads to my lab, without the, pe- without the people who built the lab, without the people who set up the lab for me each day, without the people who cleaned it up, I'm part of a larger system. And Alpert agrees with him that seeing just a singular genius is missing the point. He also talks about how this focus on greatness, that the, the great get the rewards and everyone else can sort of Darwinianly struggle to become great and get the rewards themselves. He talks about how it's bad on art if we like art. He writes, and as William, and I'm, I'm sure I mispronounced this man's name, Dereshevitz, argues in his book, The Death of the Artist from 2020, this view of the world is crushing most creative types. The system, yet again, rewards the few and leaves the rest to fight for scraps. It's virality or bus, stardom or oblivion for artists. As living in cities like New York or London becomes a positional good, there's a scramble for the material wealth to be able to live where one's friends and families are. In this situation, people who might otherwise thrive in the city, like teachers and artists and plumbers, are forced to take on more jobs or fight their own way to the top of their positional hierarchy. For plumbers, this might mean offering 24-7 service and constant customer attention to ensure five-star online reviews. For artists, it means networking and clawing their way to the limited slots in blue-chip galleries or tenured teaching posts. So again, he presents a pretty Darwinian view of the world if greatness is what gets rewarded. And then here's how Mr. Alpert engages with the book we're going to look at next. He says this. In his half-enlightening, half-infuriating book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving Enough, the popular blogger Mark Manson encourages his readers to realize that, quote, not giving enough is key. This is going to save the world by accepting that the world is totally effed, and that's all right, because it's always been that way and always will be. Manson's point is not that we shouldn't care at all, but that we should learn to, quote, reserve our Fs for what truly matters, friends, family, purpose, burritos, I should point out here, Mr. Manson. One of the charms that he brings, which has sold so many books, is one, he's funny, and he's also brash. And so for an old guy like me, I can read him and think, well, he's kind of talking to younger people than me because he speaks bluntly and brashly. But that's part of his charm, right, is he speaks clearly at the same time. Anyway, what truly matters, friends, family, purpose, burritos. There is some genuinely good advice here, says Mr. Alpert, talking about Mr. Manson. There's some genuinely good advice here about not getting worked up about pointless things and about finding meaningful concerns to engage. But there are also some obvious problems with the items on Manson's list. They're all about getting what you and yours want. There is no broader mission here. Again, Mr. Alpert, in his context, is all about social change and et cetera. And Manson is talking about, you know, how to make your life better. So they might be at cross purposes. Uh, Back to Mr. Alpert from The Good Enough Life. Being an academic, he situates this view of meaning through greatness into historical context. So this might only interest me. I don't know if this interests you, but I love this sort of stuff. He says this. Underlying much of the philosophical history of the world is a battle between two views of this history. On the one hand, there's a call for us to live more simply, more in tune with nature, and less anxiously trying to make our way to the next big thing. We might associate this position with thinkers like Siddhartha Gautama, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Henry David Thoreau. On the other, there's a belief that an individual's singular goal on earth should be to break free from our limitations and become as great and powerful as possible. This might be associated with Confucius, Plato, and Adam Smith. There were people in our groups who argued with Confucius and Plato. I'm just just the messenger here, quoting Mr. Alpert, but talking about two views of the world. Be in harmony with nature, live simply, or maximize your potential as viewpoints that have always been at war in our history. 
And then he talks about another philosopher. Again, forgive this, this sounds a little uh, heady. We'll soon get to things that are very earthy from Mr. Manson. But he, um, he brings in another philosopher, Aristotle. He talks about the Aristotelian approach with this question, that virtue comes from doing whatever you do well rather than from extrinsic rewards. So he talks about being a surgeon. He says, what's the intrinsic reward? What's the virtue of being a surgeon? And it's that you do good surgeries. You're an excellent surgeon. People would be wise to come to you for surgery. That would be the intrinsic reward of being a surgeon. An extra, extrinsic reward of being a surgeon that is the wrong way to go, but could be tied into greatness thinking, is you could be the surgeon who goes just lots of surgeries, brings in lots of money to your hospital, is a good earner. And whether or not the surgeries are great is beside the point. He's clearly arguing for the first, not the second. He says, and he says this is an Aristotelian way of looking at how to find greatness. In this view, he writes, you and I should strive to be the best at whatever we pursue, not to make money, but to achieve the highest goals of our chosen field. Now, a question that might cross your mind as it did mine is, don't most people have to make money? Isn't that a little elitist to say, don't worry about making money, just be the best at whatever you're doing and money, whatever. But I'm, again, just the messenger here. That's his point. So he looked at how this approach was behind the philosophy of the TV show, which perhaps you saw. It's on Netflix now. It's a delight called The Good Place about heaven and hell and philosophical questions. It's a delightful comedy. He says this, one of the show's key inspirations turns out to be Aristotle. In an interview at the show's end, its creator, Michael Schur, was asked if the writers had come up with an answer to the question of the good life. After joking, yep, nailed it, Schur continued, I don't know that we have an answer. But the show ended up taking a position, and it's something close to Aristotelian virtue ethics. He then clarifies, because you're doomed to fail, a gloomy way of looking at the world, although one that Mark Manson, the blogger, will soon pick up on, what matters isn't that you do everything right because you're doomed to fail. What matters is that you try. When you make a mistake, you apologize, and then you try something else. Okay, let's transition to some thoughts from The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F by the blogger Mark Manson. He writes, I believe that today we're facing a psychological epidemic, one in which people no longer realize it's okay for things to suck sometimes. Again, he speaks bluntly. Some suffering is always inevitable. No matter what you do, life is comprised of failures, loss, regrets, and death. Happiness is not a solvable equation, which turns out to be a central part of what he's saying. Dissatisfaction and unease are inherent parts of human nature. Much of the self-help world, he says, is predicated on peddling highs to people rather than solving legitimate problems. Remember, nobody who is actually happy has to stand in front of a mirror and tell himself that he's happy. Of course, Mr. Manson is in the self-help trade, but he's commenting on his peers. Um, and he talks about this thing, which we talked about on an earlier podcast, called the hedonic treadmill. Maybe you remember what that is. It's the psychological idea is that we have kind of a happiness set point and that if things get better, we are happier. It's provable if you win the lottery, if some good for you know get a, get a promotion, you get married to someone you love, whatever. Your happiness does go up in ratings, but then within six months, it rebaselines back to where it started because it just becomes the new normal. And if you have some hard thing happen, you have a health crisis, whatever, uh, you lose a job uh, or lose a love, your happiness does go down. But within six months, it tends to rebalance to wherever you were. It's really resilient, our happiness levels. And so there's a treadmill that we're always trying to get more good things in our life to make us happier, which never gets us anywhere. Anyway, hedonic treadmill. Here's how he comments on that. A fixation on happiness inevitably amounts, he says, to a never-ending pursuit of something else, a new house, a new relationship, another child, another pay raise. Psychologists sometimes refer to this concept as the hedonic treadmill, the idea that we're always working hard to change our life situation, but we never actually feel very different. 
This is why our problems are recursive and unavoidable. I like that use of the word recursive. He says, the person you marry is the person you fight with. The house you buy is the house you repair. The dream job you take is the job you stress over. So Manson's solutions sometimes seem more pat to me than his diagnoses, which are often quite provocative. But here's a taste of the sort of solution he offers. Who you are is defined by what you're willing to struggle for. People who enjoy the struggles of a gym are the ones who run triathlons and have chiseled abs and can bench press a small house. People who enjoy long work weeks and the politics of the corporate ladder are the ones who fly to the top of it. The joy is in the climb itself. Um, more diagnosis from Mr. Manson. Once you accept the premise that a life is worthwhile only if it, if it is truly notable and great, then you basically accept the fact that most of the human population, including yourself, sucks and is worthless. I was thinking about not including that quote, but then I thought, no, it seems true. If, if the only way our life is worth it is if we make it, that means make it above most people, which means we're saying that most people, maybe vastly most people, are horrible or not worth living or whatever. And is that really what we want to say? I think that's a good point. Uh, and to give him credit, maybe there's a worthy suggestion he offers here. He says the ticket to emotional health, like that to physical health, comes from eating your veggies. That is, accepting the bland and mundane truths of life. Truths such as your actions actually don't matter that much in the grand scheme of things. And the vast majority of your life will be boring and not noteworthy, and that's okay. So sort of gloomy, but he says it gives us this. This will give you a growing appreciation for life's basic experiences. The pleasures of simple friendship, creating something, helping a person in need, reading a good book, laughing with someone you care about. Sounds boring, doesn't it? That's because these things are ordinary. But maybe they're ordinary for a reason because they are what actually matters. And here's where I find myself thinking about Kevin, my high school friend, who thought, if you don't become famous, what's the point? Who didn't become famous, who died relatively young, but who, from what I can tell, had a loving family, an interesting job. Well, those are the ordinary pleasures. Manson says, that's what actually is going to feed you and matter. Maybe my friend got that. Um, more advice from Mr. Manson. We don't always control what happens to us, but we always control how we interpret what happens to us, as well as how we respond. Accepting responsibility for our problems is thus the first step to solving them. Fairly common self-help advice, but he has an interest, interesting spin on it. There are problems we aren't at fault for, yet we are still responsible for them. For example, if you woke up one day and there was a newborn baby on your doorstep, it would not be your fault that the baby had been put there, but the baby would now be your responsibility. You would have to choose what to do. My first girlfriend dumped me in spectacular fashion. She was cheating on me with her teacher. To make things worse, when I confronted her about it, she promptly left me for him. Three years together, down the toilet, just like that. I was miserable for months afterwards. That was to be expected. But I also held her responsible for my misery, which, take it from me, didn't get me very far. While she was to blame for how I felt, she was never responsible for how I felt. I was. So, anyway, I like that. So there you go. That's it. A taste of how some people think of the good enough life. As you'll recall, all I promised up front was to set the table for conversations you might have rather than to draw conclusions or tips. But hypothetically, what sorts of conversations could you imagine having about these ideas? Does this hit you where you live? Is there something you'd want to process with someone about how should you think about your own hopes for greatness? Um, I've had now a ton of conversations about this. Um, while I've got you, do you want to choose right now who you're going to have these conversations with? And let's say you do have the conversations. 
once you schmooze about this with that person or those people, um, do me a favor, drop us a line at contact at journey-on.net, contact at journey-on.net with how they went. What was interesting or helpful in those conversations about is a good enough life the right way for you to think about where you're headed? All right. Thanks for listening. I'll talk with you again soon.